There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. Lover's Lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. The DBs may not be a household name, but they were influential in defining the power pop sound we love today. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. The DBs join us to play songs from their first album in over 20 years. Plus, we review new music from Beyonce's kid sister, Solange. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Love Roller Coaster from the Ohio Players, one of the great funk singles of the 70s. We're playing it in tribute to Leroy Sugarfoot Bonner, who died at the age of 69 in Dayton, Ohio, recently. The lead singer and guitarist in the Ohio Players, one of the great funk bands of the 70s. I mean, what was in the water in (laughs) southwestern Ohio in the late 60s and 70s, Jim? I mean, we're talking about Bootsy's Rubber Band, Lakeside Slave, Heat Wave, Daz Band, Zap featuring Roger Troutman and the Ohio Players, an amazing array of bands specializing in this sound. Bonner was the front man of the Ohio Players. Everything he did was to excess. I mean, those bell bottoms, if you could look at some of those YouTube videos, (laughs) the tallest afro. One guitar wasn't enough. He always played that double neck guitar. So he was a flamboyant showman on stage. Also one of the most outrageous bands of that era. The deep bass, those synthesizers that hip-hop groups later on loved those outrageous, scandalous album covers. I think a lot of people may remember them just for those albums being on the shelf at various stores. The music lives on. More than 200 rap songs have sampled the Ohio players. The Red Hot Chili Peppers covered them. The band had seven top 40 hits between 1973 and 76, five gold or platinum selling albums. Leroy Sugarfoot Bonner was the key player. Here's Skin Tight from the Ohio players on Sound Opinions.
That is skin tight on sound opinions from the Ohio players in homage to Leroy Sugarfoot Bonner, dead at the age of 69. listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song The Wonder of Love by the DBs. That tracks from their latest album, Falling Off the Sky. It's the first release in over two decades from this band. The DBs, Peter Holsapple, Chris Damey, Gene Holder, Will Rigby, four guys who grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and formed the band in 1978. They weren't really big sellers, but those first two albums, Stands for Decibels and Repercussions, they shaped power pop by mixing that CBGB's punk and new wave sound with the melodic pop and the avant-garde textures of the Beatles. Now, the members have gone on to work with various people like R.E.M., Ryan Adams, Yola Tango, and they've continued to work on solo projects. We've got Chris Damey coming out with a new solo record called Lovesick Blues. Will Rigby's been working with Steve Earle for a long time. Peter Holsapple, very active with musicians' health care issues in New Orleans. Greg, as the DBs, they came by the Sound Opinion Studios late last year on the tour promoting Falling Off the Sky. As you said, these four musicians were all born and raised in North Carolina. You can still hear those southern roots in their sound. But as Peter Holsapple explains, that sound never has been nostalgic. You know, we were living in an area where it was a lot of Marshall Tucker and Allman Brothers, and as great as that stuff was, we sort of rejected it <laughs> for want of a better word and really kind of dove into the move and the who and the kinks and um, you know, stuff like that. that just, I mean, that we'd just... already been there in a way. Paul Butterfield, Mike Bloomfield, those were the people that you and I started playing. That's true. Winston-Salem, though, had a fairly active scene in, in the 70s. There were a, a number of bands there. So what, what actually prompted the, the move to New York? Well, Chris moved up there to play bass with a group called the Erasers and then uh, to play with Alex Chilton. And little by little, everybody sort of made their way up there. I was the last of the group. But I think everybody sort of realized that it was going to be harder at that point to do what we wanted from North Carolina. Well, people may forget that the record industry as we knew it then was basically centered on like four cities, you know, L.A., Nashville, uh, New York City, and maybe London. And back then, it seemed like such a daunting task for a small band from a relatively out-of-the-way city, which was basically any one of the non-big fours, to, to, to get a record out or, or, or to form a band. Well, forming bands was never a problem in Winston-Salem. We had a surfeit of really great musicians that we grew up around. But, yeah, making that next step, I mean, we were fortunate. We had uh, Don Dixon in the area, and his band Arrogance had put out a really great single in, what, 1970, 69 or 70? And that was sort of then... Just seemed sort of like, okay, well, we could do it like that too. So that was handy. And then Chris started car records. I do think that the idea of us moving to New York to have a huge career probably wasn't true. At that time, it was more like just, uh, is there a way to express yourself? It, it was later on that people really started 
winning the lottery and having these huge deals with merchandising and everything. You know, we were excited about playing CBGBs. Yeah. Um, it, it was, well, and you it were was, committed. It was to, more just about the the way the band worked, and not about it as a business proposition. You, you guys were committed. You were paying Chris to put out records by they Alex. They let me Chilton. out after a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, at a time when you must have been scraping to pay the rent, to put money into putting out seven inches was was inspiring. You that's, know? that's very true. I mean, I got a I had a little label, and I got a call about putting out a record by Chris Bell, who was a Memphis songwriter, had been yeah. in Big Star. And it was a great record. It's called I Am the Cosmos. But I, I had to work extra shifts at the restaurant to come up with the $150 to press, you know, 700 copies of the record. Only one of the greatest songs ever in <laughs> and pop it was, history. And it changed the world for just a couple of seconds. I grew up listening to and, and loving you guys and seeing you as, as a missing link. There was Big Star, and it was this cult phenomenon. And then you guys, and we've mentioned Don Dixon would go on to work with R.E.M. Mitch Easter, of course, produced R.E.M.'s first couple of records. Peter, you would be in R.E.M. as the, the touring musician for five or six years, right? Something like that, yeah. There were all these connections, you know, but you guys were like, Three years too early to, to, to make what would become the roots of alternative rock. Well, we decided we'd take our time making this record, so this was, took seven years, so <laughs> we can be late for something now. Well, it's been worth the wait. Can we hear something from, uh, from the new record? Sure. When you're standing on the first step of the bus and you're asking yourself, what are you doing this for? And you hand the man the ticket, find a place to sit, and try to rest in the night heading north. And you settle in your seat, and your mind stops drifting to what it is you may be running from. You better wake up, wake up, wake up, that time is gone. World roll by outside your window as you lean against the greasy gray green glass. And you're trying hard not to sleep, so you're counting every second that rolls past. Cause you know if you sleep, you just dream about her all night long. You better wake up, wake up, wake up. That time is gone. That time is gone. That time is gone You better wake up, wake up, wake up That time is gone Every truck that passes, every cactus Every bird is freer than you now You got nothing holding you back Nothing tying you down Freer than the law allows Cause there's no going back to go back to one more time Over finished with it done You better wake up, wake up, wake up That time is gone 
Uh, that time is gone from the DBs on Sound Opinions. Chris Stamey and Peter Holsapple on guitars, Gene Holder on bass, Will Rigby on drums, Brett Harris on keyboards. Boy, that's the first track off the new album, Falling Off the Sky. And I want to get back to something that Jim said just a few minutes ago about being slightly ahead of your time, Peter. You put out those two records, Stands for Decibels and Repercussion, with uh, Albion Records, a UK label. And I distinctly remember going to the record store and having them special order it because you could not get those records. Oh, yeah. Was that a, just a, a lack of uh, recognition for you guys, or, or how did you respond to that complete, seemingly, ignorance by the, by the label system of, of your existence? We really didn't have much choice. We sort of had to roll with it. I was working in a record store at 3rd Avenue and 23rd Street for years, and we'd get that in. We'd get the first two DBs records in, and you never knew how much they were going to charge you for them. So we had it anywhere from eight ninety nine to seventeen ninety nine. And, you know, I mean, when you're standing there trying to sell somebody your own record, it's like... <laughs> Uh, okay, well, why don't you try this XTC reissue? It's only three ninety nine, and if you like that, trust me and come back and buy mine. But it was it was always d- sort of difficult. But the thing is, in retrospect, Albion was a great label. They took a lot of great chances with us. They did the first record in a in a bean tin. Mm. Um, they did the second record when they were sort of fighting the piracy thing, and they stuck a cassette on the front of it, and you know made that so you could record on the other side something that you wanted. Um, I, you know, they really were a brilliant label in a lot of ways. But, I mean, as far as not being able to get anything out over here, was it was frustrating, but we still played and we still tried to get a deal. But, you know, you don't you sort of work with the cards that are dealt you. And um, it was depressing sometimes, but it, was, it wasn't enough to, to call the game in. But, you know, if I may put myself in your shoes, I can imagine what you were hearing that was sort of in the air at the time. You know, you'd hear like a band like The Knack or something that, that got a huge deal and, and, and put out records that were, you know, in the same ballpark. I mean, it, it wasn't like you guys were making strange records. Like, I, you know, I can't understand how anybody would put this out. It was like these very accessible records. And from your perspective, Chris, did you feel like, why, don't, why aren't people getting this? 
I, I think I know too much about the history of music to think in that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, um, and, I mean, we would feel like we had friends. I mean, the, the soft boys were there. They, they weren't um, on top of the charts, but there would be a connection. Um, a lot of the things we liked, I, I think the disconnect between commerce and music is fine by me. And, and I don't think you can think of failure musically in terms of how much money is in your bank account. We didn't plan on putting out collector's items. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, we would have very much thought that our stuff was in keeping with the popular artists of the day uh, that were getting signed for the gazillion bucks. But it's hard, to, it's hard to get outside of your music enough to be able to say, well, this is what makes it so difficult for record companies to understand why this is not, you know, you know why will they sign... I don't even want to say a band's name because I like everybody so much. Mm. But, you know, it's like, say, 2020, great band. Um, why did they sign 2020 and not the DBs, you know? Mm. But they didn't. Coming up after the break, more with Chris Stamey, Peter Holsapple, and the legendary DBs. Later in the show, Jim and I are going to review the new album by the lesser-known Noel sister, Solange, and I drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Todd, and that is the song The Fight from the influential power pop band The DBs. They're our guests this week. They have a new album out called Falling Off the Sky. They're first in almost 30 years. The DBs first came of age in New York's Lower East Side in the scene in the 70s and early 80s. 
Many people still think of them as a traditional pop rock band, but the punk and new wave sounds in the atmosphere at that time definitely filtered into the band's music. I asked co-lead singer and songwriter Chris Stamey about the less traditional elements in that sound. There's so many interesting things about the way, you know, Peter putting a, a whole bunch of light bulbs in a plastic bag and smashing them for the song The Fight. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, um, the, the, the way we recorded things on Cycles Per Second without listening to the track, so it's completely aleatoric. And then we did these interesting mixes. I think there were elements in the music that were different than the Knack or the 2020. And, mm. and, and to me, that's actually more interesting because I've, I've heard the story before. It's new to your listeners, but... I don't think the DB, framing the DBs in terms of huge successes is what is crucial to talk about. I mean, I, I would also just say that one of, the, one of the things that we've always tried to do with recording DBs records was to try to make them have many layers for the listener. And I think, you know, there, there's a lot of records out there, and there always have been, where you listen to it once and you get the gloss and the veneer, and that's great, and, that, uh, and then you forget about it. But I think our records have, have fortunately held, a, held the interest for, for years, which is good. And I hope that, I think the new one fits in the canon, like a good cannonball should. <laughs> How about another song from the DBs? Sure. Albatross is fading fast He's falling through the looking glass And as the world he knows receives No one can hear his fervent pleas Ah, 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 ah His loyal friend, the doggo Yeah. 
Yes, The Adventures of Albatross and Doggerel by the DBs on Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. We're in the studio with Chris Stamey, Peter Holsapple, Gene Holder, Will Rigby, and Brett Harris, the youngin' in the group. Okay, so, Chris, yes, sir. A, a wonderful psychedelic pop gem, that song we just heard. Correct me, boys, and feel free to jump all over me, all right, <laughs> if I'm wrong. But But my perception always has been, Chris, you were the psychedelic freak of the band, always pushing... The weirdness and Peter, you were from the heart as songwriters. I'm talking about right, but in this analogy, you, Chris, are the Lennon, and and Peter, you're the McCartney. <laughs> and I've always thought that he was definitely the Lennon, and never quite understood that. Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally the the sardonic wit, the gift of language. I mean, my lyrics kind of just muddle through there. Uh, I, I do think that when we sit down at the table and pick out the song, sometimes we balance it out and. On some of these records, Peter had, would have like four or five just astonishing little jewels of clarity, and then we, we would put a little bit of shadow in there with my songs to match it out. Because I, I think if there are people who have heard my solo records, they might find things more Peter-like in terms of being romantic, straightforward lyrics. And I also think Albertus and Dogrill is very romantic. I mean, it's the question, do animals have souls? Okay. And if they do... What is their afterlife like? Well, see, I would never come up with anything like that. <laughs> with all the LSD I've taken in my life, that would have never occurred to me at yeah. one moment. I think it's I think it's a it's a funny situation because anytime you have like two main songwriters in a group, they're going to do the Lennon McCartney or the the Partridge molding at you or whatever right. you know. And I mean, we both come from a lot of the same records in our collection you know we both had naz naz we both had message from the country we both had a lot of the same records and and absorbed all that stuff it's the it's, band too i mean one of the things many things were great about duke ellington but he wrote for the ensemble mm-hmm. and we're in this band and we have the great gift of being able to write for the group but it's a group and there are things the group does that are remarkable and yeah. will if you tell will it's a three three eight bar in that second verse only he'll play it you know and then he'll say but maybe we really ought to extend this here and you know it's a very flexible little micro orchestra and peter and i get to direct it but you know i got i gotta follow up on that because that song was just fascinating to watch all five musicians in the room playing that song I think orchestra was the word you kind of brought up there, Chris, a little bit. But that's what I felt I was hearing, this kind of epic thing uh, that could have been 15 minutes long and it still wouldn't have been boring because there was a surprise every every few bars. It's interesting because I talked to you actually like seven years ago when this record was, I guess, just store, sort of in its beginning stages. And you said to me 
that these feel like DB songs to me. And I'm wondering, like, in your head, you're writing these songs and it, you're hearing all these parts or you're hearing, oh, these guys could bring this to that song that isn't already there. I'm just curious how, how that, a song like that starts. Um, let's see specifically, besides the part about the animals. Um, I do know the band really well. I, I, I've been in it off and on for a really long time, and I, I, I thought that this would be a good kind of sound. And, you know, when, when I played it, I went to Cleveland and ran down some stuff with Will and played this for him, and, and the way that the rug is pulled out on the chorus, he said, yeah, that sounds like something we'd definitely have done in our first year of practice, you know. As a songwriter, if if I know the DBs might play it, it's going to shift the writing toward what might be great in terms of the band. How about another song? Sure. Which is... Will to Cry? You think you know it all Love someone, well, where did it go? You learn to trust yourself, not for long. You think you're the one that wrote the very last love song. You try to brace yourself before you fall. You try to catch yourself when you're up against the wall. It was so easy when we knew how to fly. You think you're the one that taught the world to cry You taught the world to cry You taught the world to cry You think you're the one that taught the world to cry And once you've had the best, the rest won't do And when it's all over, it's all over for Just what went wrong Is the time to sing Just one more love song Cry, cry, cry Till you're misunderstood Dry your eyes Like it does any good Cry, cry, cry And when you're crying is through Will there be anyone left To cry for you You taught the world you taught the world to cry You think you're the one that taught the world to cry Completely pinch yourself Choke yourself just to see how it feels And when you ask yourself the reason why You think you're the one You think you're the one now, now You think you're the one that taught the world to cry You think you're the one that taught the world to cry You taught the world to cry You taught the world to cry, you taught the world to cry, 
World to Cry by the DBs from Falling Off the Sky. They're here in the Jim and K Maybe studio with us on Sound Opinions. Fantastic stuff. I'm curious about history in this regard. The last record by this lineup was 1982, and now we have this new record. So many adventures in between. Gene's produced a lot of records, played on a lot of sessions. Will has played on sessions and toured with Earl. Peter, you were a sideman to R.E.M. and and to Hootie and the Blowfish on on these giant, mega, huge, enormodome tours. And Chris, producing records, recording. What did having all those uh, experiences uh, give you guys that you brought back to the DBs in I making think this almost record? Almost nothing. I think it just that we walked in the door as if we just left. Really. No, I mean, again, the lying thing, remember? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Excuse right. my friend, the liar over there. I definitely got something. I had, uh, I had a band for about 10 years called the Continental Drifters. And right. I, right. I think I learned to sing in that band. I think one of the, uh, the uh, difficult parts of the early DBs was the, the sort of fluctuating live shows. I guess that's a nice way of putting it. Hmm. Um, you really didn't, you know, on nights when we were on, we were really on. And nights when we were off, we were really off. And so, mm. I mean, I think I think everybody's musicianship is 150 times better than it was the last time we were together. And I think the singing is far, far better as well. So, Well, I, I want to follow up on that because, Chris, you have been incredibly self-deprecating about your production work on the early DBs records. Really? No, I mean, I'm... Some of the stuff, anyway. Uh, whoa, uh, I, I just missed that. I mean, it, the first one we did as a band with... Ellen Betrock, and then Scott Litt did the next one. Right. So I didn't actually produce them. Right, right. No, you didn't produce, but I know that you were kind of... You said to me that if you had had the knowledge that you have now, there were so many things you would have done differently from from that perspective. Oh, well, I was just talking. I mean, life is like that, you know, <laughs> and it's not true. <laughs> so this is a long-winded way of getting around to... You, you, you've produced all these records. Ryan Adams, Whiskey Town, Alejandro Escovedo, Matthew Sweet. Latigra, don't forget Yo, the Latigra, Latigra, great, yeah. Yeah. great group. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. So a long history of production. Gene's done a bunch of uh, producing. But yet you called upon your old pals, uh, Mitch Easter and Scott Litt, to, to do some additional production. What was the reason for that? I think you've got to think about fashion models. You know, you, you see this... A human creature over there who's stunning, and they look in the mirror and they they see that blemish on their nose and that, <laughs> that you know lopsided earlobe. I, I don't know. I think it's hard to look at yourself and it's hard to hear yourself. And uh, you know, Mitch and Scott bring insights that, that we don't have. We're really close to it. Having said that, um, the band did a lot of the heavy lifting on this record. Well, when you guys broke up for good the the first time in the 80s, um, the DBs weren't that well-known. Uh, it was difficult just to even get the records out into the marketplace. I know that. Since that time, the DBs have increased. I mean, in terms of just their stature, their influence, a lot of bands citing you as an influence. Did that have any weight at all about how you went approached this record? Hey, hey we have a legacy to live up to. Are we going to be as good? I know some bands are scared of going back there and, and saying, you know what, I don't, we don't really want to make a new record because it's going to be compared to our old stuff, and it's not going to be as good. We kind of know that in our hearts. Um, how did you guys face that? Somebody came to me at one point and said, you should get the DBs back together. You'd make a big pile of money. And I was like, why would you say that? We didn't make a big pile of money the first time around. I don't really understand that. I think the, I, you know, the feeling that we had was the importance, the record had to be as good as or better than the records that we had in our collection. You know, it, it, there are some bands that have come back uh, with all 
firing on all eight. You know, Mission of Burma comes to mind. Their records, since they've gotten back together again, have been as good as or better. Mm -hmm. The Feelys record is as good as or better, you know. But we really wanted to make a record that had some artistic validity to it and that had a present-day approach and a feeling of being contemporary but not feeling out of place with the other records that we've put out. So, And I think I think we succeeded in that situation. Uh, we didn't really sit around and have the discussion as to how relevant are we and how relevant is this going to be because, you know, we would have to take into account how relevant were we in the first place. We were, <laughs> we were, we were there. We existed. It's however many people heard us the first time around. We were hoping we're still either alive or we're in a position to be able to purchase records again and get it and figure it out and then pass it along to their children. We want to thank the DBs, Chris Stamey, Peter Holtzapple, Gene Holder, Will Rigby, Brett Harris, for being our guests on Sound Opinions. Guys, thanks so much for coming in. It was a really cool experience. Thank you for having us. You can check out video of the DBs reunion in our studio at soundopinions.org and share your thoughts. When's the last time a band came together after 20 or 30 years and made a strong new album? Give us your answer or tell us anything else you'd care to about the world of music at 888-859-1800. We'll be back after a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with a new release from Solange and Greg's addition to the Desert Island Jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a song called Losing You from the new Solange Knowles EP, True. Greg, Beyonce's younger sister, okay? That's what most people knew about Solange. She was 16 when she started her 
entry into the music business. Two albums, Solo Star in 2003, didn't do much commercially or critically. The next one, the awfully titled Soul Angel and the Hadley Street Dreams in 2008, was a slow seller, but it did make it to number nine on the Billboard album charts. Then Solange split with Interscope Records, who really seemed to want her to be Beyonce Jr., part of the big pop franchise. And she starts hanging out in Williamsburg, of all places, embracing indie rock. This new EP is coming to us from Terrible Records, a label co-owned by Grizzly Bear. Apparently she was dragging Big Sister and Jay-Z to Grizzly Bear concerts in Brooklyn. She's been on stage covering the Dirty Projectors indicating a wide-ranging interest in sounds other than the pop R&B world that her sister has always been part of and that Interscope wanted her to be part of. This record is made in collaboration with her longtime co-songwriter and producer, a guy named Devante Hines. He's done a lot of stuff under different monikers as a DJ. They're working together on this album. It's kind of a short album or a long EP. Seven songs, all pretty lengthy. Let's hear one of them. We'll come back and we'll give our opinion. This is called Locked in Closets by Solange from True on Sound Opinions. When I was just a girl, I felt just so alone. Let myself in closets thinking if I was the only one. Then I shine on my Locked in Closets from Solange and the new EP called True. Jim, with these seven songs, I think this is just exactly the right length it needs to be. It's a mood album. I think 14, 15 samples of this kind of music, you know, you would have worn out on it. But at the length it's at, it's just about perfect for what it's trying to do. You know, you mentioned that she's the sister of Beyonce. Well, she sounds nothing like Beyonce in this record. She has definitely made the break here with that family legacy. Anyway, a lot more in common with uh, alternative or indie R&B artists like Santi Gold or The Weeknd. She's got her own thing going on with this British songwriter and producer, Dev Hines. You know, he's a domino recording artist. This guy is coming from a left-field perspective. And the electronic textures here are more atmospheric rather than hooky. We're talking about sort of a chill-out kind of record. 
if you're looking for some late night bubble bath music or you know late night lounge music, you know this record does a good job. I mean, it's it it definitely works as a seven song mood piece. It insinuates rather than shouts at you. I think she's working on a new record. I would like to hear her strut some different moves, some different flavors when she gets to the full length. But for what it is, I think True is a very promising record. I like this new direction that Solange is going in. I'm going to give it a buy it rating. I'm kind of stuck for a minute uh, with you in the late night bubble bath. <laughs> that, that derailed me there for a second. I think I like this uh, record a lot more even than you. Do you recall that early 80s Martin Scorsese movie, After Hours? Sure. Uh, where, where it's that weird underground world in the Lower East Side of New York, and it's simultaneously seductive but threatening. This is the musical equivalent of that, okay? I think the grooves are taking their time. You kind of got to luxuriate in this sound that is minimal at some spots but very lush at others. It reminds me a lot of a band from that era, that place in time, Liquid Liquid. But also there's a little bit of that new wave soul sound of Yaz, all right? I'm not saying that Solange is Alison Moyet. She's not. But the synthesizer sounds, the drum sounds, the way the grooves take their time in unfolding, and her lyrics all kind of conjure this mood, as you were saying, of a woman who is eager to try new things, some of them potentially a little dangerous, but is also dwarfed by that. She is seductive, but she's also a little afraid of the power (laughs) of being seductive. I would not mind a whole album of this. I wouldn't mind two or three more albums of this (laughs) from Solange. So it's an enthusiastic buy it from me for True. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Break from time to time here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play folks a track which we cannot live without. We're experimenting with some new technology here. I'm going to put you in the Star Trek transporter and zap you, beam you down, Scotty, over to the island. What have you got for us? Well, Jim, I've been spending a lot of time with Joni Mitchell's music lately. There was a box set that just came out of her early albums, the late 60s stuff through the late 70s, about 10 albums that I think every one is worth hearing. The two records that everyone talks about first when they mention Joni Mitchell, Blue in 1971, Court and Spark in 1974. But there was a record between those two masterpieces that I am obsessed with lately. It's called For the Roses, came out in 1972, If you're thinking about Blue as the peak of the folk years, the folk phase of Joni Mitchell, and Court and Spark as the beginning of a whole new era, the beginning of the neo-jazz, more avant-garde phase, this For the Roses album is about the I'm done with the music business phase. You can just tell she's a little bit fed up with the way things have been going for her career, the way she's being perceived. The song that I'm going to play, she wrote in response to a meeting with her record company's executives when they heard what she was working on in this album and said, you know, Joni, we don't hear the single. Yes, record company people really do talk like that. Joni Mitchell was like, you got to be kidding me. I don't, I don't know what a single is. I don't know how to write one of those. She responded with the song, You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio. 
it could be perceived as a as a Joni Mitchell relationship song. She's talking about this guy who's got this issue with, you know, I, I'm not sure I like the weak ladies because, you know, they're kind of boring. And I'm not sure I like the two strong ladies because, you know, they know what's up and, and they're going to ferret me out. So I'm just I just want somebody in between that. I just want a middle of the road kind of gal. And Joni's basically saying, well, I'm not that pal. That's just a bunch of static on your radio station. This this relationship is going to end badly if that's who you think I am. So it's basically Joni talking to this guy, but what she's really doing is talking to the record industry. It's an amazingly multi-layered song. And at the same time, the artistry of Joni Mitchell, it's a folk song with her guitar at the center of it, that rich, lustrous, atmospheric sound she was coming up with on the acoustic guitar. It's country-ish in spots. There's almost a pedal steel-like guitar sound in, in some parts of it. It's got that blues feel with some harmonica, almost avant-garde. She's the producer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist. The way she's layering her voice, it's almost like a, a moan or a gospel thing. And then there's a little bit of a Latin feel with the hand percussion. So you've got all these elements. What an amazing artist. The record company didn't quite know how to, you know, who are you, Joni Mitchell? She's saying, I'm all of these things and more. Yeah, you can't figure me out. I guess that's part of the problem here. It's Joni Mitchell. You turn me on. I'm a radio on Sound Opinions. Driving into town with the dark cloud above you. Mitchell with You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio, Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have our Valentine's Day special. We're going to look at songs that say, I want you back. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. 
Thanks to Mary Gaffney and Andrew Gill for helping with our session with the DBs. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. Our assistant producer is Annie Minoff. Our intern is Griffin Waterman. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia, he knows quite a bit about late night bubble bath mood music. Bust down these walls, I'm going down Niagara Falls in a barrel of fun. Hey, a lucky one, you don't return my call. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, my name is Brendan Coleman from Rocky Point, New York. With regards to South Park, my favorite musical moments is from South Park the movie where Satan is kind of singing a almost a Whitney Houston-esque song. I want to live up there. Kind of a soulful song. And he goes into the high falsetto. Without a Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you guys have a wonderful night. Bye. This is Alex calling from Madison, Wisconsin. Kind of coincidence with your show on parody and satire, and then your review of the Yellow Tango album. I really couldn't be more disappointed with the clips that I heard. You know, you talked about Stereo Lab, and the sound that I heard on there was just like the parody of the least attractive aspects of Stereo Lab that I can think of, and it's really not inventive. Sometimes and Cake and Stereo Lab have that kind of, they're just on the right side of that line, but from those clips, Yola Tango, I'm sorry to say, it seems like it's way over the line into just complete parody of that kind of lounge sound. So anyway, lots of other good Yola Tango albums to listen to, and maybe the album as a whole has brighter spots than that. Thanks. Hello, Jim and Greg. This is Brian Phillips of McDonough, Georgia. I enjoyed the show on satirical songs, but I wanted to address a couple of points. First, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, as it was originally called, Neil Lennis was not the leader of the band. He joined it later. The leader of the band, creatively, was Vivian Stanshaw. People in the United States may know him for his narration on the second side of the Tubular Bells album by Michael Oldfield. Also, Frank Zappa's Rolling in It for the Money is a great album, to be certain, but the song that you played, Who Needs a Peace Corps, I think illustrates the problem that I have with Frank Zappa. One, he knows a joke, but he also tends to overstate it. So the first part of the song where he's singing is fine, and then he goes into the long narration in which he beats the joke into the ground. First I'll buy some beads, and then perhaps a leather band to go around my head. Some feathers and bells, and a book of Indian lore. I will ask the Chamber of Commerce how to get to Hate Street and smoke an awful lot of dope. I will wander around barefoot. Thanks. Enjoy your show. Take care. Hey, it's Bill from Keeling, Virginia. Guys, I wanted to comment on the really great show you did on satirical songs. 
and put one out there. I was in college in 1980 when Blondie released the Auto-American album and was just completely baffled by the song Rapture at first and really wondering what is this and why is it on this record? Talking about a man from Mars eating bars and cars and guitars and all this nonsense from, from what was otherwise a really brilliant you know, band. But I became convinced that this is either brilliant satire or a really bad song. And there's a part of this rap part of the tune where it says, take a tour through the sewer, don't strain your brain, you'll be singing in the rain, don't stop to punk rock. So anyway, I just want to mention it. I'm waiting for somebody to point out that this is satire. Please tell me it's satire. It went on, of course, to be a great big hit, and I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it wasn't intended to be a parody or a satire, but I think so. And if so, brilliant. Anyway, great show. Always appreciate it. Keep up the good work. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.